Hey, this is Daryl. Thank you for listening to the Total Soccer Show. Today's episode is the first of our book club episodes, but if you haven't read the book, don't turn off. Here's why. It's not like we're reading a work of fiction, like a novel, and you have to know the plot in order to enjoy a conversation about the book, right? We are reading The Age of Football by David Goldblatt, which is all about the state of soccer in the 21st century. And on today's show, George Qureshi, you know him as the uh, managing editor of The Athletic Soccer, joins me to talk about the issues raised in the introduction and the first chapter of David Goldblatt's book, The Age of Football. Before we get to all that, I want to let you know today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is sponsored by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. That's SalvationArmyUSA.org. I will put the link in the show notes so it's easy to click. Hello and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by the man who I've been referring to as Florida Taylor. His name is George Qureshi. Hello. Oh my God. Uh, hello, 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 Daryl. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Did you hear that recent reference? It was a couple episodes ago. Uh, we, we kind of decided that, because we're going to be doing this book club, right? We're going to be talking about David Goldblatt's book today. Uh, the age of football that the best pairing to do it was me and you because maybe you and taylor were too similar oh yeah i mean that, i think that's true but also it that's a real power move to call me out in the very first like minute of the show um because i am a regular listener but i did not hear that reference and so um oh yeah. that's good we can add one future download to that to totally that you, you own me no I, I, you're, you're auto downloaded so you get the downloads even if i don't listen Nice. Okay. Maybe delete and download again. We'll yeah, double, yeah. double downloads from sure. George. You got it. <laughs> so we've been um, teasing this idea for a little while now, George, right? That you and I are going to do a book club and we are reading David Goldblatt's new-ish book, The Age of Football, colon, Soccer in the 21st Century. That's right. Yeah. I'm, you know, look at this guy. What a diplomat getting football and soccer in there so that he's just taking that <laughs> right off the table. Uh, very smart. He's an SEO genius. <laughs> um, so the, I think it's worth pointing out from the start, before anyone clicks stop, maybe because they haven't read the book, uh, that we are talking about the intro and the first chapter. And the goal <coughs> is to talk about it in a way that we're not going to be referencing it, referencing it, and there'll be things that people won't understand, right? We're going to be talking, explaining what we're talking about as we go. So what I'm saying is you don't need to have read the book to listen to this conversation. Yeah, I highly recommend reading the book, but um, hopefully this will be entertaining in and of itself, um, you know, so you're going to have to carry that weight, buddy. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to try my best. Here's where I want to start though, George. Um, I've never met David Goldblatt. I read his first book or his, uh, first famous book, The Ball is Round. Mm. But you, I know, have co-hosted a podcast with David several, several times, right? Back in the, the dummy days, it was you, David, and Bobby Warshaw. Yeah, before um, that, it was David and I and, and David and me and uh, Danny Carbassian. Um, so yeah, he, oh, Danny Carbassian, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is it always George, um, an <laughs> author, and an ex-footballer? Is that the, is that it's, the it's been many things. But so David, David, I, I'm, I, am a, I was a fan of David's from reading that book. It, it is one of like my top two or three ever all-time soccer books, The Ball is Around. It's a, it's utterly just just knocked me over when i read it yeah. the first time um, i mean it's big it's definitely gonna knock you over yeah and sorry i just said <laughs> i read it the first time like i've read it multiple times <laughs> i've definitely only read it once <laughs> even though i have multiple copies i have a kindle i have a paperback i have a hardcover uh and i am just like i was such a huge fan so i, I wrote to david in 2014 and said hey will you write for me he did. And then coming out of the World Cup, uh, I said, Hey, we're going to launch a podcast or, you know, we're going to continue this podcast we launched during the World Cup. Will you join it? And he said, yes. So, uh, David started, I started as a fan. He became kind of a colleague, I guess. And now I am very lucky to consider him a friend. I went to, I was in the UK in last August for the, the launch of the athletic in the UK. And, uh, I had a free day. So I, got on the train. I went down to Bristol and we went to see um, a Bristol Rovers match together, which, you know, we hey. walked, yeah, we walked to the stadium from his house. It was just like such a great experience. And I, I, I want to say that because David, you, you might not get this from reading the book and we'll talk about it, but he is a huge soccer fan. He loves soccer. Going to a soccer game with him is not in any way laborious or, or didactic. It is 
<laughs> he's not just... giving you socioeconomic lectures between, <laughs> no, no, between corner kicks. No, he loves the game. And, <laughs> and I, I had never been to a, a lower league game in, 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 uh, in England. Oh, right. Actually, it's that's not true. Right? I've been to, Daryl, I've been to two games in England in my life and both involved Bristol Rovers, uh, because of David. <laughs> the first was at Stamford Bridge. They came to play Chelsea in like a, an early, uh, league cup tie. And so it, it, that's my, that's my story. Um, but yeah, I, I just want to get that out of the way. David and I are friends. This is going to be a totally biased, uh, yeah. series of podcasts, but, um, but you know, man, what a, I, I consider him a, a a genius in terms this of this is interesting yeah. i was just yesterday listening to a podcast um i can't remember what the podcast was uh, but it was ricky gervais talking about how david bowie was one of his heroes and somehow they became friends and how weird that was so i'm, I'm hearing like a soccer soccer academia equivalent here so am i the the regional manager in this in this uh you scenario? are okay. you are the okay. regional manager yeah great <laughs> which makes brooks peck assistant to the regional manager <laughs> I hope he doesn't hear this. <laughs> so here's, here's what I wanted to ask is, one, does David know that we're reviewing his book? And two, does it affect how you read it, sort of the fact that you have a friendship with the author? Um, I don't know the answer to the second question. I, I do know that he knows we're reviewing this. Or, I mean, we're not reviewing the book, right? We're talking about the book. Um, and we're talking about soccer through the lens of the book, I think is the right way to yeah. put it. And uh, Yes. Yeah. And and he's he's offered to join us later on. Um, later on in like a month or oh, two great. or whatever, whenever we get to the end. Uh, and so people, you know, can ask him questions. We can ask, I have questions that I'm compiling that I want to ask him. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. He's a wonderful conversationalist. It'll be a, a great, uh, a great time. So then the part of the second question is reading the intro, um, especially it's, it's really obvious that David has a certain political opinion, right? You would not call him, um, a right-wing business is the most important thing kind of guy, right? It's very much the opposite. Um, do you, like, I was really conscious of, like, I, I tend towards that end of the political spectrum as well, right? So I'm probably with you and with David. I've seen your Twitter. Um, so I was really conscious of, like, am I sort of the choir that's being preached to here? You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah. So, so what I'll say about that is um, if you read The Ball is Round, and, and this is what just really wowed me about that book the first time I read it. It's a, it's a history of the 20th century through, uh, through the history of, you know, the, the dominant cultural sort of, um, expression or form or whatever of, of that century, right? So you're, you're yeah. looking at this time, this stretch of time through the thing that has captured the most imaginations, uh, sort of taken up, soaked up the most amount of time and penetrated to the, the, the farthest reaches of, of this planet, um, over that time. And, and so to me, it's, it was so interesting to look at, um, to look at soccer and, and the way that soccer and, you know, globalization and capitalism and, um, all of these different forces that have shaped our world are intertwined, use each other, um, you know, affect one another. And, and so I was a history major in college. I was actually focused on African history, which will be relevant today in, in our conversation. Oh, the, the I'm first glad, chapter is. I'm glad one of us is knowledgeable. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say that's going to come in handy for it's, it's, it's been 20 years, but, uh, but yeah, um, you know, and so, so reading this is, was just so eye opening. I was like, wow, somebody's treating this, um, not just like a game, which it obviously is. And, and we love it for that reason, but also because it's a, it's something that teaches us about ourselves and, and about the world around us. So, so that, that's what I would say. And, and yes, uh, any good history book, any good, any good history will have a point of view, will be making an argument. And I think, you know, I, I, um, I identified two in his introduction, right? Um, but but first I want to before we get to that I want to ask you who do you think this book is for like what is he doing in this book what what like who would, who would read this why are we reading this I mean I think it is literally for people like you who are interested in soccer but also interested in history but I would say also interested in the way that I think we're in like a really weird age right where the world is kind of changing where uh, globalization and commercialization has really like hit the accelerator um, and I think that's who the book is for. It's for people who are interested in how that rapid acceleration um, of uh, business and you know globalization is affecting everything around us. Yeah, I um, agree with that. And, and I think, and I would also argue that that gets to the the difference between the ball is round and this new book, the age of football. Because my original thought was like, oh, he's like doing it geographically. Hasn't he already done that? Hmm. And I think sort of what he's doing is saying that there's a difference to what happened in the 20th century to what is happening in the 21st century. So much so that what that book was published, Ball is Round was published, what, early 20th century, like 2006 maybe? We might have had like a um, an, 
like an extra run where they publish something about the 2006 World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels like he seems to think that enough has changed in the intervening 15 to 20 years that things are so different now that it's worth an entire update because that's how much things have changed recently. Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, another thing I would add to that is that it's probably not for, or at least it's going to be challenging to the people who say, you know, who, who go on the athletic and say, uh, get, get your politics out of soccer, right? Because, right. Um, because the premise of the book <laughs> the, is that the that's the anti-stick to sports book. <laughs> right. But, but I think one of the arguments in the book is that that is impossible to do. Like you, yes. you literally cannot do that. It is, um, it is, it is just not something that's possible, even if you would like to, which I, I certainly don't. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, you have to almost construct a false reality if that's what you're trying to do, right? Um, especially if you're looking at anything off the field. Like maybe Taylor and I could do, uh, like exclusively do our podcast where we just talk about tactics mm. um, and we just like analyze what players are doing. But as soon as you leave the field, and but even when you start talking about transfers or anything like that, you run into the rest of the world and yeah. everything that's happening there. Yeah. To me, it, it's sort of one of the questions that I couldn't get out of my head when. And when I was reading this, uh, especially the introduction and, and really the, the chapter on Africa is a question that I've often posed to, to friends of mine, to people who, who think a lot about the game. And, and I've said, I may have said this to you before, um, would you, if you had a choice and you could only play soccer for the rest of your life or watch soccer for the rest of your life, which one would you do? And I think that that is a dichotomy that, that really spoke to me in this, in this chapter, in, in the introduction, because um, he's essentially using the, like, we should tell people what this introduction is about. He basically yeah. takes you into the World Cup final, uh, in 2014. Uh, yep. Yeah. So Germany, Argentina. Yeah. And, and sort of describes what he's seeing. He just sort of gives you a tour of the stadium. So what's happening on the field? What, what are you seeing if you look around the stadium? What, what does it sound like? Um, what is it like getting in the security apparatus, the, uh, the VIP boxes? Um, well, I think I don't think I'm giving it. Um, I'm do, I'm I'm doing it, giving it its due, um, because it's a really, really detailed and, and interesting and eye opening experience to to go through this. Even if you've been in these some of these places and and seen this, um, I actually think it's it's a great example of why David Goldblatt is such a good writer. Is that it actually sounds quite boring what you're describing, <laughs> it's exactly. and it's not even a, it's not even a failing on your part. But what he's really good at is picking out the various things he's seeing, and then he's done the research that he can give you a little anecdote. And it, the one example I'll give, and I, we'll get back to where you were going george but i think this is really worth communicating to people yeah, who yeah, want to understand please. what this book is is he's looking around and he sees a replica germany jersey that someone's wearing um and he basically gives you a breakdown of how much it costs if you bought it um 85 euros and he gives you a breakdown of where what that money is made up of right 14 euros in tax 36 euros to the store 25 euros in profit to adidas five euros in adidas marketing and then five euros left over for production then he goes in and breaks that down um so 60 cents of the 85 euros um is available to pay the workers and these aren't just numbers he's made up right he's gone and researched this heavily but he's like given it to us um in this frame of sitting in the stadium and looking around and using things like oh there's the jersey here's here's a breakdown of what the jersey costs right yeah exactly and so um you know and and i found maybe the most effective part of that introduction to me was when he says all right now now we've seen what this looks like now let's jump back in time and and recall the 1986 world cup final right same two teams yes uh, sort of it was west germany versus argentina right in in mexico estadio azteca and and what's different right and basically everything is different (laughs) there's just (laughs) you know and this is something that i had noticed i mean start Starting with, I would say probably 2002 is where I would put my finger on it. Um, when you watch the World Cup, you you su- suddenly couldn't really tell where you were in the world, right? It could have could have been anywhere. It could have been a soundstage in Hollywood. It could have been yeah. it could have been on the moon. Honestly, if you could fly <laughs> fly the crowd yeah. there and get the get okay. the you know get the hors d'oeuvres and the but where yeah. wherever it is, we know that Coca Cola is available and Budweiser is available. Correct. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so and so he he he. Uh, you know, I'm not going to quote from his book uh, very, very much, but I do want to just read this one little piece where um, he, he says this, uh, viewed from our own time, the 1986 World Cup final was the last in which the balance of forces inside the stadium and beyond was sufficiently in favor of the crowd that a real spontaneous chaotic carnival could take place. A world in which, if only for a moment, economic and political power and their needs were trumped by the numbers and the exuberance of the crowd, a proxy for the forces of global civil society. And he's just described Diego Maradona on the field, like in triumph, and people rushing the 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 the, 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 the field, which couldn't happen now. Uh, you know, yeah. in, in the screen, you don't see a security guard in sight. You don't see, you know, the signage is 
the doves left over from when Estadio Azteca was built for the 1968 Olympics. And that was just like a motif that they had in, in the stadium. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not Phillips and Budweiser and whatever, like, like you mentioned. Um, so to me, that is such a dichotomy. And, and the answer for me has always been, I would so much rather play soccer if it, if it meant I had to give up watching it than, than vice versa. And I think that maybe says something about my sensibility and why this book is, is so dear to me. You won't be surprised to hear that I would give the exact same answer. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and that gets to this idea because what we're giving up is a, a consumer experience, right? And that is also what this book is about. It's about, to me, Daryl, um, what has happened in the last 20 years after the U.S. essentially vanquished um, its, its, its ideological uh, nemesis of the 20th century, the Soviet Union. And, and we've had essentially 30 years of unfettered Americanness sort of dominating the world. And, and yeah. so we've had an acceleration of all the forces that we've seen and, and it ends up, you know, <laughs> commodifying the game in a way that, that I think is, is at the heart of this book. I've just realized that the end of history coincides with the beginning of FIFA fan zones and the beginning of the Premier League. <laughs> what a terrible, terrible uh, discovery to make, but yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, have you got anything else you want to talk about from the introduction? Um, cause if not, I'm keen to move on to the, the big old chapter about African football. But the, I think the introduction is really important. I was tempted to skim through it as I often am with introductions, but it really pulled me in and I think there was a lot there. So I don't want to move on too quickly if you've got stuff you want to talk about from there. Okay. okay so I said I'm not going to read anything like a lot from this book. I have one more thing I do want to read from the introduction because I think it gets at this idea that I, that I started with that David has a really great sense of the game as being for play, uh, in addition to being, you know, for analysis and for discussion and argumentation. Um, yeah. And so I'm going to just do this if that's okay with you. And, and, and this will pretty much be it. But uh, he, 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 there's one paragraph in the introduction that sort of takes us on this journey from, from this premise that, yes, it's, it's just a game at heart to this is why it's important to argue about a game or to really look at this game, right? So here it is. Uh, this is from page four. Football, in the end, is just a game. Games and the logic of play that animates them are premised on the notion that the point of play is just that, play. It is a realm amongst many things of experimentation, pleasure, curiosity, and one in which neither money nor power should determine who can play or how to play. If they do, we are no longer merely playing, but in some way fighting or buying or bullying. Thus, Almost universally in football cultures, there is a sense that games should not be fixed, that victory should follow virtue, not wealth or power, that glory bought is glory turned to ashes, that the game is not about me or you, is not about me, sorry, is not about me or you, but about us, that success and failure are collectively made and shared, that we are only as good as our weakest link, our most vulnerable teammates and citizens, despite its commercialization, despite its capture by the global culture industries, despite every move to make over and manicure its staging, despite every effort to make the game pay homage to power on this earth, it remains a place in which, albeit dimly, a different world can still be imagined. So to me, man, what, like, first of all, sort of just gives you a sense of his writing, and I think he's a great writer, um, having yeah. edited him myself. And, uh, but uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is it for me. This is the book. Yeah, that's like a good precie of everything that's that that he's going to be arguing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um but the worry for me is it it feels like he's saying there's all this but there's still this. Um but the the sort of points of light so far feel like outweighed by the sort of the negative aspects of the like overly commercial approach that soccer has taken. Yeah, I mean and and here we're transitioning right to chapter 1, right, which is about Africa. Um and I think that uh what what you're identifying is is something that I I've noticed as well, and that is that you know a lot of in the in, in the introduction he he goes over like all the different geographies he's going to talk about all the continents basically Asia South America Europe and and they all have different problems um, and different ways that they're interacting with like the power structures of of world soccer and of the world in general right but but what yeah. is immediately clear have you, have you read ahead George or have, are you just basing that on what he says in the intro I'm really curious if you're ahead of me or if we've both just read chapter one so far I've not I've, I've only read chapter one um, all right good to know but but like you know in the in the in the previews a lot of stuff really resonates with me, things that I've yeah. observed and, and, you know, we're, we're all pretty plugged in and we've, we've been following this and, you know, I've done, done a bit of traveling. I mean, I started thinking about a lot of things that I saw when I was in Trinidad making a little documentary about, um, about Trinidadian football a couple of years ago. And man, I just can't wait to get to the, the CONCACAF section to see <laughs> what he has to say about that. But, you know, what, what, one thing that became clear to me is that, you know, these are power relationships that really come out of a 20th century of the, where the story was like decolonization. And, and, and mm -hmm. so it's not a, it's not a surprise, right. That, um, 
you know, that, that Europe is, is the metropole, as David puts it, the, the center of world football. And that, um, as it has grown and become more and more glorified there and, and just really reached a pinnacle of, of like human achievement, really. Um, it is also that the, the same processes have, have impoverished the rest of the world. And, and so when you say that there's a lot of darkness around there, there is, and, and it sort of manifests in, in very specific and different ways. And that's sort of what each chapter, goes through and discusses, right? I mean, we're not in a happy place, I would say. This is not, this is not a mood yeah. where <laughs> we can look at the world in the 20th century and say, oh, you know, things are fine. <laughs> and, and that's reflected in soccer. I think that's fair. Um, and actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from the, the quotes that David uses to open the chapter, because I think they're really telling. Um, so the chapter's titled The Living and the Dead. Um, and it's two quotes that actually made me laugh in a really grim gallows humor kind of way. Um, I'm, I'm sure you can remember what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, the yeah. first quote is from Tabo Mbeki, who was the president of South Africa in 2009, so a year before South Africa hosted the World Cup. And Mbeki's saying that um, he thinks historians, he hopes historians will reflect upon the 2010 World Cup as a moment when Africa stood tall and turned the tide on centuries of poverty and conflict. Um, we're about to show that Africa's time has come. And the second quote is, Liberian football is dead. We are looking at ways of reviving it. And that's the president of the Liberian Football Association in 2015. So he's really like laying out the the promise and the optimism of the 2010 World Cup and then the reality of what was going on at least in Liberia 5 years later. Yeah. Yeah, it's really st- stark um and and uh you know and and so but but we are again like going back to the themes of the book this, this is the difference between the 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 spotlit you know, shiny FIFA sanctioned event, mega event yes. that, that costs and brings in billions of dollars and, and the reality of soccer on the ground in a lot of places where, you know, it's, um, right. It reflects governance, in, you know, civil, civil society and governance in those countries. Right. And so it's not a surprise. So let's talk about specific stories from Africa. Yes. I think that's where this gets really interesting for me. It's like the theoretical is, yeah, I can discuss that, but, um, really like the stories and the way that he illustrates these things are really the heart of this book. And, and to me, it's so interesting. So what stood out for you? The thing that stood out to me the most, um, it's not a specific story, there are lots of little examples of it, is the way that the popularity of the Premier League uh, being broadcast from like the 90s onwards via satellite had sort of hollowed out support and interest in local leagues around the continent, more or less everywhere. Like I kind of guess that might have happened, like because I'm aware of, say, Euro snobs in the US. Um, who like won't watch Major League Soccer because they're too busy watching the Premier League. But I didn't realize that this was happening on such a grand scale um, in various African countries. There's a the great, great quote in there from a general manager of a Nigerian team of, uh, we don't have our kickoffs the same time as Arsenal, because if we do, no one will come watch us play. Right, right. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, and, and really it sort of illustrates how uh, this, is not a, it, it, this is not a sort of, you know, we, we often hear that old cliche about, you know, what a rising tide lifts all boats. It's really not like yeah. that. It's, um, it's a zero sum game and, and the yep. English Premier League. Some boats has, get sunk, right? They do. Um, and, and, uh, you know, the, the rise of the Premier League has, has really not just coincided with, but also helped cause, um, the destruction of like local soccer in a lot of places. Um, for, and for a variety of reasons, and we can talk about those, but it's super interesting to me. And one thing I'll say, uh, David's book before this was called The Game of Our Lives. It was about, um, it was about this sort of 20, 30 year period in Britain itself and how the Premier League broke away from the English league structure. And what I, what I want to say about that is that, um, it's not just that, you know, the rise of English soccer, quote unquote, or the Premier League has been bad for, you know, Nigerian club soccer or club soccer in other places, but it's also been bad for England in, in certain ways. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's really about the, uh, the transfer of, of public assets, of public trusts, these clubs that have, you know, in many cases, a hundred plus years of history and the privatization of that and, and, you know, for private gain. And so, and so that's happened in England and it's, it's impoverished English soccer in a way, uh, that's different, but, but just as stark and, and, and revealing, I think, as, as, you know, in, in Lagos or, you know, Uganda or wherever you want to put your finger down on a map. It also raised a few really interesting little stories about people who have 
at least briefly profited from the Premier League's prof- uh, Premier League's popularity. There was a really nice little story that really stood out to me. It's almost like it could be like um, it could have been like a whole New Yorker article if it had been expanded. But instead, oh, like it's just film. like two, yeah, I know two, what you're two about, or three yeah. paragraphs. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about the the village in Southwest Uganda. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. It's the Premier League viewing house where this one guy basically got access to satellite and set up a viewing house and um, had people from this small village come and start watching um, at his house. And it changed the culture of the village. That's the fascinating thing for me. Apparently, the culture used to be that there wasn't any specific time. There was just sort of moon, uh, mooning, morning, um, afternoon, and evening <laughs> is just roughly how people would refer to the progress of the day. And this village started using clock time. I'm, I'm guessing this is a pretty remote village, but they started using clock time for the first time so that they could, like, you refer to specific kickoff times. Um, and it really like, changed the changed the culture of the village. And it, they started reorganizing the entirety of village life around, like, you know, the, the 3 p.m. kickoff or, or whatever, wherever the game may be. Um, but then I think the satellite company went bust and then this guy, this guy's little business that he'd started went bust. And it's this whole microcosm of maybe everything that happens when football comes to town. Yeah, it's an amazing. It should have been a, like a little movie or a short story or something. It's so, yeah, definitely, so right? Um, I could read 12 pages of that in The New Yorker. <laughs> I mean, and, and what does that illustrate for us, right? It says, says something about the wider world for sure, because this didn't happen until, until the English Premier League packaged itself as a global commodity, right? As something that you can access anywhere until technology caught up and, and was able to beam this into this, this very remote place in, in Uganda. Um, it, it, it says something about the, the status of these, of these people where, whereas, you know, I think, um, one thing that really strikes me, I, I've traveled a bit in, in, in Africa, um, sub-Saharan Africa and, and just like the, the flatness of, of, of society. Um, there, there's just, you know, definitely there are, there are very, very wealthy people. You never see them and then everyone else. And, and these people's status and sort of social standing and their, their wealth rose along with this. And, and anyway, all of these things come back to these larger themes for me. And that story was such a great illustration of that. It also got me thinking about myself because one element of the story that I missed out was that um, this village also started taking an interest in wider geography of the outside world right? because the players they were watching were from, <laughs> yeah. say, Wales. So yeah. this isn't yeah. a specific anecdote that David, that David uses, but I'm thinking that they'll like, you know, watch Ryan Giggs and be like, oh, what, what's Wales? Let's have a look into this country. Um, and it got me thinking about my own sort of the way I've learned about a lot of the globe is through just watching soccer and then suddenly weirdly being interested in Ukraine because Shevchenko is from there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And recently, uh, I know you've been boning up on Belarus and Nicaragua. Uh, weirdly, so, yeah. <laughs> I deliberately haven't. I'm boycotting. <laughs> I'm boycotting watching those leagues. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel you. Um, yeah, I mean, the Uganda one is really interesting. And, and he'll come back to Uganda at the end when he talks about Luzira prison, which I don't want to spoil. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, um, yeah, I think that we see a lot of things here. I, uh, something else that that I think is a is a, a through line in this chapter is the um, the investment of of Chinese construction firms and the Chinese state in yes. really across Africa building stadiums. What he calls stadium diplomacy. I don't, I'm not sure if that's something he coined. Um, but no, there's uh, a whole there's a whole Wikipedia em- entry on Chinese stadium diplomacy. Oh, did you go deep George, on this? Yeah, tell this me. was well, not I went as deep as Wikipedia. <laughs> um, <laughs> this was news to me. I did not know this was happening. It's not just happening in Africa. It's happening all over the world, where the, China will essentially for free or for very low interest long-term loans, build a stadium in a city. And I, I really spent a good 10 minutes sitting there thinking, why? What, what is the point of Chinese stadium diplomacy? And this is why I had to turn to at least Wikipedia to figure out exactly what the deal was. And it seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, in, in hindsight, David spells it out in the book and I kind of missed it for, on the first read, yeah, yeah. that it's just about establishing good back-scratching relations with uh, with governments, right? So it's essentially, we'll build you a stadium, but you give us sort of prioritized access to natural resources like oil or copper or whatever we might need in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, so the first thing I want to say is, how come they haven't built one in the Bronx? That's that's question number one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe a really brief, this might be really common knowledge, but maybe a very brief primer on like how colonialism worked would be uh in order here i mean it's essentially you know um european countries came in they they colonized you know which is essentially their economic power allowed them to just sort of take over a a vast territory uh Mm -hmm. they would put um they would choose uh, a local um 
leader uh, to put in charge over everyone else, whether or not they were legitimate or, or not really, and prop them up. Um, and then they would essentially uh, make that person and his his people, uh, always a he, um, extremely wealthy and and take very good care of them in exchange for uh, the right to sort of extract as many resources as they wanted and take them back to uh, back to Europe to, to to manufacture. And so they never really built up the the economies of the places they lived. This was very famous famously done in um, in Ghana in, in in a lot of places where they would just take out what they're doing and they're still doing it today with with oil. So like Angola and Nigeria are two of the biggest exporters of oil in the world. And, and these are extremely wealthy countries, but the wealth is not shared. It's really controlled by a few people. And so when the U.S., you know, when decolonization happened and the U.S. sort of later um, removed its its own uh, sources of, of income and, and like support because it was no longer fighting the Soviet Union uh, in these sort of proxy battles, um, it sort of left a vacuum. And China has come in and very wisely, I think for them, uh, decided, oh, you know, we're going to need water. We're going to need places to grow crops we're going to need natural resources um we can we can for a for, for a pittance of of what this stuff would actually cost if a if a society democratically controlled their resources we can access these and sort of um and use the soft power to 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 allocate them basically yeah cuz a 100 million dollar stadium is actually not that expensive when you think what china get for it in the long run right right exactly everything they need to make cell phones <laughs> which is like <laughs> the engine of their economy so yeah i mean right it's, uh, it's really fascinating. Hey, this is Daryl breaking in to let you know that today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is sponsored by, you guessed it, theblacktux.com. The Black Tux is how you can find your perfect fit without leaving home for free. They have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. You just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request the free home try-on so then you can feel the fit and the quality before you commit. And they have all kinds of styles. So you can go full tuxedo like Arthur Canard in the English game. Or you can go with a sharp suit that will turn heads. Either way, it's got to fit right, right? And if you're not sure of your sizing or what you're looking for, then the Black Turks can help you get the fit right, even if you don't have a tape measure. With the Find My Fit option, you answer some basic questions about your height, your weight, your shoulder size and things like that. And then you can see what options you have. Once you've made your sartorial selections, the Black Tux will ship your order two weeks before your event. So you have time to try it on, make sure it fits, make any alterations if you have to. Whether you're buying your outfit or you're renting it, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at theblacktux.com. And you can also, of course, get 10% off at theblacktux.com if you use the code SOCCER. That's theblacktux.com, code SOCCER for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with George. Here's a question that this this whole chapter raised for me. Um, it, speaking to oil and speaking to the various um, reports and descriptions of corruption, why is football such an easy target for corruption? Not just this sort of um, basically legal but blatant uh, corruption of we'll build you a stadium if you give us access to your resources, but specifically on like um, a federation level, there are so many examples that David gives of sort of, um, I think the Kenyan FA was maybe the, the most blatant one um, where essentially FIFA money would come in or other revenue would come in. And none of it, almost none of it, would go to you know building building uh, fields or giving out soccer balls. It would all be sort of siphoned off by various federation officials. Why does it seem like football is such an easy vehicle for corruption? Well, Daryl, we don't have to look that far to actually to, you know to like get an example of this. Like, look, let's look at our own the U.S. Soccer Federation, right? I mean, it's not it's not as clean is you know as sort of clear cut as you know fifa is giving away money and they're you know they're they're taking it and not using it for the things they're supposed to which is sort of like the standard form of theft that we see all over the world that's what um you know that's that's the way that like many 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 people like you know jack warner being chief among them have, have enriched themselves but you know um the u.s soccer federation is sitting on this giant pile of money and it's essentially because they have a a monopoly on on the national team in this country, right? You can't just create a competing national team and say, Oh, we're going to pay you better, uh, ladies, um, you know, or, or Clint Dempsey, come, come play for my national team. No, the FIFA, FIFA sanctions them. FIFA is a corrupt institution. And so they, they basically are given a license to print money and you have to be pretty, pretty, uh, as David, uh, uh, as Larry David would say, pretty, 
pretty, pretty, pretty corrupt to, uh, <laughs> pretty bad to, uh, to lose it. Right. And so, so it's essentially just like this, I don't know, this, this structure that exists outside of the state. And in, in fact, in, in, in many ways, like it, in direct opposition to the state, I, th- I believe that there are places that, you know, FIFA has declined to, to put the World Cup because they'd have to open their books or they'd have to, they'd have to comply with local tax laws. I, I'm I blanking see. on local, you know, specific examples of that, but I, I've definitely heard about this. Um, you know, and so, and so, yes, it, these are ways to sort of, again, use this thing, this like common good, this thing we all love, this affection for, for the game of soccer to, to make, you know, it's very relatively small number of people really rich. So does that, does that sort of get to your question? I mean, I wonder what you have, if you have thoughts on this. It I think does. it's also just the goodwill that people have towards soccer, right? I, yeah, I think that's the answer that comes into my head. Like, I can't say I've researched this or looked into anything that will support this other than just what feels correct. Um, and it, yeah, it really is that I think because people love football so much that football is going to happen no matter what. So it doesn't matter if an FA manages to siphon off a load of money. Like there was um, a report cited in this chapter that uh, for some some things that come into the Nigerian Football Federation, only 10% of it actually manages to get outside of the Nigerian Football Federation. Yeah, um, and the rest is people enriching themselves through things like um, fake invoices for, you know, trips and hotel stays, right? You sort of inflate it massively and keep 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 the it's embezzlement basically right um so there's a lot of, <laughs> yeah. lot of examples like that but because football is just so popular and will keep going no matter what it never fully fails and so you can siphon off a load of money and football doesn't die football keeps going right i mean because because it's invested like think about these teams that are constantly going bankrupt in the uk right um let's say like what's a team that's gone bankrupt recently can you think of one off the top of your head um, um bet was it berry Sure. So Barry has fans and they have like tradition and they have, they have, uh, they have history. And, and even if like the person who owns Barry goes bankrupt, that's going to be worth something because you have this like group of people who have invested it with, with meaning and with, with like uh, essentially with, with money in, in, in the, in the sense that like that is monetizable. Right. And so, so yeah, I mean, I think that as long as humans are searching for this like social cohesion, this interaction with people that that they love, uh, that, that have shared memories and, and, and sort of nostalgia, it, there's going to be inherent value to, to soccer. And so, and, and so that's why you see this, um, you see this like sort of eternal optimism around like soccer being profitable, but also like, you know, it is opaque in certain ways, right? I mean, you think you can see on the field, um, yeah, a very clear example of like, okay, who's better than, than who? Um, this is all out there for us to see, but it's really very difficult to break in. Um, and you have these situations where, uh, a lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes. That's why agents have become so powerful and, and these backroom dealings you hear about. And I mean, we're talking right now while the guy who did, uh, what was it called? Football leaks is in, is in, is under house arrest, yeah. right? Because he's, uh, he's revealing, yeah, he's revealing all this stuff about the way that the game really works. The business of the game really works. So I want to raise maybe then a, a bit of optimism, um, or at least an optimistic point. I think I found really, really exciting was the story of the Kenyan Premier League. So uh, for those who don't know, and I didn't know about this, what happened is the Kenyan Football Federation had been doing this thing of just siphoning off any money that came in, refusing to uh, you know, actually invest it in football. And so instead of letting that continue to happen, the clubs, the biggest clubs in Kenya, club together um, grouped together and formed the Kenyan Premier League as uh, a, a corporation that's like, it's incorporated, owned and governed by the uh, 16 or 18 clubs. Um, they incorporated in 2003, started playing in 2007. And then the only uh, the only people with a stake in this league are the teams that run the league outside of the Federation's oversight, or at least the Federation's access to money. And apparently this has been really, really successful. So I quite like the idea of seeing um, an optimistic story or a positive story of clubs figuring out a way to, um, a way around the Federation who were essentially intercepting the money that would come from FIFA, right? Or from or from elsewhere. But it also made me really interested in the idea that the way to solve a lot of problems is that you find the people who have no interest in seeing the money leave the game. You find the people who are genuinely interested in growing the sport. And maybe clubs are the entities that are, that are capable of doing that. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really interesting point. It's happening here and there, as, as David notes in the book. Um, and I think that, to me, what struck me as so interesting there is that it's not just a, 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 an end around um, to, get, to get past a really incompetent and corrupt uh, federation, but also like the state, right? The, the courts and the, the government that allows yeah. this to happen. Um, and we think, we often think of like, 
uh, you know, a democratic structure is like really being embedded in the state. And, and this shows what happens when actually the state is not democratic. It's, it's, it's really serving only a few. And in this weird funhouse way, like funhouse mirror way, um, a bunch of like, for-profit companies banding together is actually a more democratic outcome than like, you know, <laughs> than like a, a supposedly democratic government governing <laughs> this, like this industry. It also made me think is, should we look at major league soccer more optimistically? Cause that's essentially what has happened here in the U S right. Is that the leagues that, sorry, the clubs have all banded together to form the league, this single entity, major league soccer structure. Um, and that's what, that's what's allowed soccer to grow in the United States. You could argue that it's sort of a, a mirror image of what's going on in Kenya. I guess so. But like what, what problem is MLS trying to solve by structuring itself the way it is? Well, it's a little different, right? Cause they're not trying to um, like uh, bypass like a legal system that doesn't work or a federation that isn't willing to help them. It's the opposite, right? US soccer and major league soccer are very much hand in hand. I think what um, MLS is doing is um, artificially growing the game faster than it would naturally. That's, I mean, that's how I, I see MLS's I think, role. I think that's the argument that MLS would make, right? And, and yeah. I think the argument that like that you know that, that people who want to see pro rel make is that actually this like free market competition would actually be would actually be healthier. Some teams would would die off, but others right. And so so and and you know I, I find I find I find there to be some sympathetic parts to both arguments. Uh, you know, it's it, that's a different conversation. Um, but yeah, I would, I would just say that like the example, the examples in, you know, Nigeria and Kenya are, um, pretty extreme cases where like these teams have no other alternative. It's sort of, you know, they're just desperate to, to do something to like, you know, end the corruption and, and get around, um, really some, some significant hurdles. And in yeah. the U S it's just, it's just not, you know, it, these are, com they're commercial hurdles. There are like, you know, there are other hurdles, but they're not, um, <clears throat> They're, they're not part of like the, the structure of like, you know. Yeah. The, the hurdles are the popularity of, of the sports. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, I want to talk about some other like positive points in this. The one that got me really interested was, um, the, the downside is the, the lack of interest in the local leagues, right? Like the Nigerian league or the Senegalese league. Um, interest has dipped since, uh, everybody's watching the Premier League instead. Um, but there's like these brief mentions that David gives, and I really wish he'd gone deeper into this because I found this the most optimistic and interesting part of this whole chapter, um, was the sudden popularity of essentially amateur leagues that, um, everybody can get behind because it's, it, it comes from more of like a local, like a wellspring of pride in locality. You know what I'm talking about? The, uh, there was the, the Senegalese neighborhood based yeah. league, got yep. 10,000 people for the final. And apparently people are just way more passionate and interested in that league than they are in sort of, um, what's left of the Senegalese professional league. Well, yeah. And, and when I was talking earlier about Trinidad, this is something that I heard there as well. Like they had these sort of uh, neighborhood based teams that were really popular. People would come out and watch them. Uh, and then as soon as they built like Otto Bolden stadium, um, you know, where, where the U S lost to, uh, yeah, to, to, to Trinidad, um, people stopped going. And I, I experienced that cause I, I, I drove out there, um, to go to a game and it was, you know, a good 45 minutes hour away from, from Trinidad, uh, sorry, uh, for Port of Spain. And so, so, you know, like they, this, this whole idea of like killing, killing this really organic, beautiful thing in order, you know, in the, in the name of like, serving like the commercial gods. Right. And, and we see this when David talks about the Chinese stadiums, um, they're being built on the outskirts and they, they didn't bother yeah. to think about how people would actually get there. And so, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. So like it's, being built in the equivalent of Frisco, Texas. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, you're right. And, uh, and so, yeah, you're right. Hearing about these, these examples of, of sort of where it's sort of just grown up on its own, um, is so heartening. And, and I really love to see it. And, and I guess the idea being for me that, you know, if you can go and see soccer in person, there's just, there's just an element of that, that you can't capture on TV and, and especially not, uh, you know, in, this is where he talks about the, the primacy of the Premier League as well, where, you know, if you're watching a game on TV that's in the Premier League, the production value is impeccable. And if you're watching yeah. it in, you know, beamed from, from Lagos, even if it's from a nice stadium, you know, there might be two cameras and they, they're showing the whole field the whole time. And it's just like, it's just not a good experience. But if you can go down the street and just watch, you know, even if the quality of play isn't that high and just watch this in person, like there's something really, really special about that. And, and that's, I think, again, gets back to the dichotomy of like, would you rather play or would you rather be part of this sort of, um, this entertainment product and 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 that's where the play is verging into the entertainment product but it's still you know sort of natural enough and organic enough and and local enough to to really be appealing 
I worry that what you saw in Trinidad might be the future of these local amateur leagues that are popular, that maybe they'll get co-opted or or crushed in some way by the professional leagues. Yeah, I mean that's that's a battle that's going to be ongoing. I, so can I can I um, can I say something that I really loved from this, uh, course, from this yeah. chapter? Um, the, there was the he, he talks about the um, the Nigerian broadcaster Ernest Okonkwo. Yes, um, and he gave this this one nickname that I think is just so. He he said he he gave these really great nicknames, and one that stood out to me was. Um, Idowu slow poison otubusin, and I just thought yes. that is amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I I want you know I want to be able to give a nickname like that, and I want somebody to give me a nickname like that. I mean, some, this is the the Ray Hudson of Nigeria, right? Yeah, essentially. I mean, wow, <laughs> wow, <laughs> just bravo, right? <laughs> and I believe that guy's passed away, right? So you can't you can't hear his commentary now, um, unfortunately. That's right. Um, well, and again, I think David used this as an example of. These guys used to be what everybody heard, but now you hear a lot of quite bland Premier League commentary. So some of the some of the flavor has gone missing, right? Yeah. So you know, I'm, I was I was less um, I was less sure about that that assertion, right? I think that you know, as long as you have um, as long as you have games going on, and you know, just the expression of soccer and the simplicity of the game just really lends itself to creativity and just really beautiful stuff all the time, just in the most unexpected places. I think you're going to have this. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not so pessimistic about that. I think that this is going to continue and there's just a really, really wonderful tradition of, of that happening. I mean, I say that, but, but do we know any younger commentators who we feel, um, are following in the footsteps of, of a Conquo or, or Hudson? Like, can you name any like that? I'm, I'm not sure that I can actually, which is kind of sad. And maybe, maybe that too is a product of like the more polished, yeah. you know, made for TV experience that we're getting these days. I don't know. You're talking about like, you're looking for a commentator with a like, big personality who might be up and coming in the UK or the US. And I, I, it's not something I pay a lot of attention to, to be honest. It's probably the part of soccer media I'm least invested in. Um, but yeah, I can't, I can't name a single person. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, mean, I guess the ones that are the, the ones that are really prized are, you know, I guess the guys who who jump from you know the TV broadcast to the, like the FIFA game, right? And, and <laughs> they seem to really like the the buttoned up, um, circumspect English accents that that you know we're used to hearing that that are you know unobtrusive and and really not the center of the the show. But I think the the real affection, and I know people, some people don't like Ray's style of of calling a game. I think it's I think it just really brings so much joy to to the broadcast that, I, and so I love it. But um, I just don't hear that in, in a lot of the newer the newer voices. So I just um, I love a good turn of phrase. So yeah. slow poison. Like, slow poison you know, assuming that <laughs> describes the player really really well it's it's perfect right i mean, imagine it's a guy that will slowly pick away at you with little passes little passes here and there here and there until he opens you up that's the, that's what i pictured here in the slow poison or I'm, maybe I'm a defensive good. midfielder who kicks you yes. for, <laughs> kicks you slowly but surely until you're too bruised to keep playing <laughs> totally um so should we should we finish up by going to south africa and talking re- returning to the world cup because i think that was an interesting place and, and we one can of the things- but we can't we can't not talk about the prison that's right zero that's right. let's that's save right. that till the very end okay right? because just like the chapter yeah um so first of all i i noted this one i never thought about this but david says that the the vuvuzelas are essentially tuned to b flat more or less yeah and, and i was like okay. so, something approaching b flat is what he said. <laughs> yes um and then the other thing that, that stuck out from this from this section of the chapter was when he talked about how and uh you know they 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 were bringing the, the world cup to south africa and they were like all right we're gonna sell these tickets we want we want a certain number of them to go to the locals and that happens in every world cup but they're only going to be available to people who have credit cards. And they didn't think, yes. like, you know what, people in Soweto might not have credit cards. Like, you know, it's a smaller, maybe it's a smaller percentage of, of the population that has credit cards. And so they had to, they had to belatedly make some of these tickets available for cash, which was apparently an ordeal. Um, and it just sort of, to me, it was such a great illustration of the way that like this global thing came and sort of plopped itself down in, in a, in a local place and didn't really consider the realities of that place and, and wasn't yeah. really for that place. It was really for, a TV audience um, in the West, more or less. I mean, everywhere, really. But like, you know, if if you're trying to sell things, you're trying to sell things. Uh, and that's what this is. I had a sort of really odd emotional reaction to that where I, I internally celebrated that small victory and then realized what a very small victory it was. Yeah. I know. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. it's it's also in that same um that same part of the chapter he's talking about how a lot of the um street vendors um, had some optimistic early meetings with FIFA's people and like, like you know, suggested that maybe this and that was going to happen. And in the end, it was the closed off 
you know, f- basically FIFA exclusion zone <laughs> where you can't sell anything unless you're an officially licensed FIFA merchandiser, which was how it was always going to be. But it, the way David wrote it, it sounded like maybe there was a, maybe, maybe there was a chance that FIFA would be more flexible this time around until everybody found out that it's going to be the same as it always has been in the 21st century. Yeah. And if we're backing out and looking at the timeline, we're sort of, you know, more or less halfway, halfway between, I guess, that Diego Maradona World Cup final and, you know, the Russia. I mean, maybe not halfway, but you get me. Um, and the we're, Russia, headed, we're heading the towards Qatar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's it's becoming less and less. These World Cups to me are becoming less and less recognizable. I mean, you know, I can look at a picture anywhere between like you know 1950 and and you know 1990 and and tell you which World Cup that was, right? And that's becoming yeah. less and less possible. Um, and and the yeah, stadiums is, look more and more similar, right? They do. And and yeah. now that the Chinese going, template, and now that we're going up to 48 <laughs> teams, I can't. I, I can tell you every team that was in every World Cup, pretty much, and and which is like a weird freak skill, right? That yeah, you get I'm not I'm not going to test it. I'm going to take your word for it. <laughs> Thank you, uh, but um, <laughs> but I, I I won't be able to do that um coming up, and I won't be able to tell you what city. Uh, well, you're not you're not getting any younger, George. It's part this, of it. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, but you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Like it's losing its character in a way that like yes. I don't think people have thought about. And, and another way this has happened is, um, you know, some of these great color combinations. Um, you know, you no longer see Argentina wearing the the blue and white stripes with black shorts and white socks. You no longer see Germany wearing white white shirts, black shorts, and white socks, right? You know, you no longer see Brazil wearing, uh, yellow shirts, blue shorts, and white socks. You, you, now that the, the colors have to be so uniform and, you know, lights versus darks, you, you're losing this heritage that you're just like a whole generation of fans is, is like not even realizing they're missing in my opinion. Um, and that's so sad to me. Well, here's a, here's a big question. Do you think this potentially, um, affects the popularity of soccer in the medium or long term? Like, could we start seeing fewer people passionate about soccer because it starts becoming this, you know, prepackaged thing that all looks the same and like the vitality that maybe drew you and I to it to begin with is diminished? I don't know. I don't know. I think about this a lot. And I think that if I, if I like try to imagine 50 years into the future and I think, okay, if if you come to soccer as, as many Americans do through a video game and not through like waking up on a Saturday morning when you're six years old and waking up because, and you've slept in your, your, your new boots and your <laughs> uniform and you go to the, have you done that? You definitely did that, right? I mean, I did. Um, you go I wouldn't be allowed to say, my boots were always muddy because I played in England. <laughs> my boots were by the back door still yes. with caked in mud. Uh, all right. Oh, well, you know what I mean? But like, there's just yeah. a, there's just an attachment to the game that, that I don't know if it's replicable. If, if, if you're getting a digitized sort of, version of it um which is more and more i think the way that people are, are coming to this and and um and so i don't know i, I mean it's going to be abstracted like w- right now the second most popular i believe video game um, maybe not second most right we have fifa we have football manager but like but like we have one that now that's abstracted it's cars playing soccer and and i'm not even sure that that like the fact that it's soccer matters to the people who are playing it. It's just a fun game, right? And so... Yeah, what is it called? I keep seeing it. Like, the USL just had a, a whole tournament using that game, and I yeah. cannot remember the name of that game. People listening to this are going to be yelling the name know, of that game know, into their headphones right now. You idiots! You, why don't you know this? We should just acknowledge that we're old people now. So, <laughs> um, But but yeah, I, I kind of wonder, like, will these attachments... How will they... Like, at some point, they become so abstracted that, like, I don't know what happens to them. I don't know. You know? That's um, a worry. That's a worry. <laughs> but, 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 but I could be totally wrong. Maybe, you know, this is the kind of thing people like me worry about, I think. Like, like you know, like the, the, I think a similar conversation happened when, when ebooks started coming out, right? <laughs> um, well, people still read. And actually, I guess maybe we're losing that one too. But uh, I mean, I read this first chapter as an ebook. So that's right. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Oh, I read, I read the hardcover. Uh, so um, I'm making up for both of us. <laughs> that's nice. I'm actually about to order it. I'm going to, I want to read the rest of it. Um, Mostly on something where the battery doesn't run down. Yes, good idea. So Luzira Prison. This was like, you were looking yes. for bright spots. This is like, this was so wonderful and beautiful. And it takes place inside of an African prison, which like, I did, does not bode well if you're looking for those types of things. Um, mm-hmm. and David did a story on this for, I think, The Guardian a couple of years ago. And so I was really happy to see. I see. see so did he book. start the chapter knowing that he had this optimistic note to end on? That's what uh, it feels like. That's maybe a thing we should ask him, uh, or you should ask him. I'm not sure how that interview is going to go, but someone should ask him, did he know that that's how he's going to end this chapter? All right, we'll make a note of that. But yeah, this is, uh, why don't you tell people what happened here? Cause it's so great. So this is a uh, Luzira prison. It's in the South side of Kampala, which is in Uganda. 
Um, and essentially, they've set up a really well-organized league um, run by an association called the Upper Prison Sports Association. Um, and essentially, it's improved prison life through, one, giving um, a tournament that they all play in something to be uh, for, for their prisoners to be really, really excited about. But it's also imposed a sort of, I mean, one, like an order, which everyone's happy with, it seems, um, that bringing order to prison life, but also seems to bring some... Um, unity with the guards and everybody who uh, is in the prison right the, to to have this common thing to rally around which is this massive football league that's happening um seems like year round at uh, at Luzira prison yeah and the thing that sticks out to me is this is a prison that was built for 500 people that now houses 3000 right um yeah. which is which is really just like atrocious and you can imagine what the conditions are like inside but but you know with for someone with my political leanings what i what, what stands out to me is you know this was this is a a soccer used as a mode for self-governance, right? This is, um, mm -hmm. this is people using the game in order to bring order to their lives in a place where they really have very little power. They have these teams that, you know, they don't form new teams every year. They have these, these are like clubs within the yeah. prison. And, Hanover, and, Barcelona, Manchester United. Yeah. And <laughs> there's the, the teams. And, and, and so there's like, there's continuity. Um, there's, there's structure. Uh, they there's have a transfer window. There's arbitration. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, and so, and so it's a way for these, these people who have very little power, very little like visibility in society to say, we're going to take back some, some control of our lives and, and really show that we can work together to like have a peaceful, you know, they, they said they don't, the, the guards don't carry guns. They don't carry guns yeah. um, in this overcrowded, you know, prison in Uganda. And, and it's largely, it sounds like because um, people have used soccer and like the, the creative possibilities that come with this amazing, simple game to like, to do this totally transformational thing, which is like, man, so inspiring. But to, to bring us back to one of the questions I asked really early on, is that it's a really optimistic note to end the book on. It left me smiling and I kind of feel like both of us, it fills, it fills our hearts a little bit for the possibilities of what soccer can achieve and the type of like progressive change it can, it can bring about. But is it enough, right? In this entire chapter where there's so many, so many downers, is it enough to just pick out these few like points of light and, and think that soccer is ultimately a positive when you compare it to, everything else that has been detailed in this book. Well, like I'm going to get real, really real right now and, and say that this is like a question that I have been thinking about a lot, not just in terms of soccer, like in the last 24 hours, 48 hours since I, I finished reading this chapter, but also went since the Bernie Sanders campaign ended. And you sort of think like, man, I sort of, you know, I invested a lot of my own political hopes in, in something like that, a left, a leftist movement like that. And you sort of think, well, man, defeated again, like what, wh where is there to go? What, what do we have? And, and I think the answer Daryl is like the same in both cases. It's like, it's just the reality. It's just where we are. Right. And so, and so like nothing is going to change until you sort of look at where we are and say, all right, um, this is where we are. And, and how do we, how do we make an improvement? And, and so if you say, all right, these, these prisoners in Uganda have done this amazing thing. That's good. Like, how can we replicate that? How can we do more things like that? How can, where, where, where else can we make an improvement? And, um, I don't know. I'm excited for the rest of this book because I think that in every geography, there's a slightly different, uh, cast to these um, to these issues. Uh, a lot of them come out of what David described in his previous book that we talked about, right? Uh, the it's a, yeah, it's a familiar it's a familiar world uh, where like the the power structures of colonialism still exist. They're just like they look a little different. They 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 mm -hmm. have different faces to them, but um, they're still there. And so it's all part of that same struggle toward like you know toward light, toward freedom, toward, you know, people having better lives that like, it feels weird to end talking about the first chapter of a soccer book to say those things. But I think that's really where we are and why I find this book to be so, so amazing. So the message is celebrate the victories, right? Celebrate the Lazira prison uh, soccer setup. Celebrate the Kenyan Premier League. I think so, but also like think about how we consume soccer as well, right? Like, okay. like, like in, in the West, uh, <laughs> You know, we we are making choices that that will really play out here. I mean, you know, little things like, am I gonna am I gonna buy that jersey? Am I gonna, you know, like do I do I connect my beliefs and my value system to like how I spend my free time on a Saturday morning? I think those all have like things that we can think about embedded in them. So anyway, that's my. I'm not gonna prescribe anything. Um, I just like that's something that I continue to struggle with. I mean, even even like you know whether we should uh, cover the 2022 world cup or how we should cover it. Like that is something that I think about quite often. It's a long way away. It's something that like 
probably if my bosses were to hear this, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Of course we're going to cover it. Like that's what we do. That's how we make money. But like that, that's a conflict for me. And so, you know, like reading things like this really helped me think through it. Um, and uh, it's, it's it doesn't solve it. Right. But it helps you like think more deeply about it. Yeah, that's right, man. All right, George, thank you for taking the time to read that chapter and talk to me today. We'll be back in what, maybe a week or so to read chapter two, which I believe is about um, Asian soccer and the Middle East. Can't wait, man. Thank you for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Same. I've enjoyed it. Um, right. If our listeners have enjoyed it, um, obviously we would encourage you to uh, to read the book. I will put links in the show notes for, um, you can buy um, a hardcover copy. Um, we've uh, A listener gave us a link, right? Or someone on Twitter gave us a link where you can make sure you order it through an independent bookstore. Yeah, bookshop.org. Like it's really great. Bookshop.org, yeah. yeah. Um, and then also, as uh, George pointed out to me, uh, you don't need to own a Kindle to use Kindle. So you can uh, download the Kindle app to your phone and then you could, the cheapest way to get the book is then to, to buy it as a, a Kindle version which you can read on any device that's right all right so george thanks once again listeners thank you for listening and we will talk to you again very soon everybody bye